Welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm your host, David Ahrens. A month or so ago, I read about a new book, Crossing Borders, The Search for Dignity in Palestine, by Krista Bruhn. I reached out to Krista, who agreed to talk about her book. But at the time we set up the interview, I, I wasn't expecting the city that is the focus of much of the book, Janine, to be the central story in the news today and this week. But here we are, and we have an opportunity to discuss these events with someone who is intimately familiar with the place and the people. Before we jump into the discussion, let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Krista Brun is an American author, photographer, and culinary artist with a lifelong passion for peace and justice. She's the daughter of a German immigrant raised under Nazi Germany, who spent his post-war life befriending those his fatherland sought to destroy. Through her father's own curiosity to explore his divided homeland as a professor of German, Krista was able to spend time on both sides of the Iron Curtain to witness the dual narrative of one nation. She grew up in the city of Detroit in the late 60s. She has an undergraduate degree degrees from the University of Michigan and a PhD from UW in Educational Leadership and Policy Analysis. She's published academic work on Palestine, peace education, and diversity. Now she splits her time between her home in Madison and her extended family in, I'm going to kill the name, <laughs> Jamala? Jalama. Jalama. Okay. Well, welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Krista. First, let's, let's talk about what's in the news. What is the city of Janine and its significance in the life and the history, modern history of, of the Middle East? Well, Janine is a Palestinian city, one of many Palestinian cities. It is in the West Bank, right very close to the northern border of the West Bank. Of course, there are other historically other Palestinian cities that now fall under the state of Israel. So in that regard, it's one of a few cities that remains under Palestinian control, if you want to even say that. <laughs> it's not really true. Is that is that sort of the official story that it's under Palestinian control? Well, it's, or PLO or you PLA? know, if you if you look at the Oslo Accords from the 90s, yeah. Janine is considered Area A, which falls under the uh, authority of the Palestinian Authority, which was created through that process. It also houses the Janine refugee camp, one of many refugee camps. Of course, many people don't know there are refugee camps in the West Bank. People who historically lived in places that are now Israel, many of the refugees in the Janine refugee camp are actually from Haifa, which is less than an hour from the camp. So these are people who were displaced from their homes in 1948 and have been displaced again and again through repeated incursions and bombings, uh, like back in 2002 when the camp was nearly yeah. leveled. So Janine is, is a significant also symbol of resistance during the second Intifada. A lot of the suicide bombers actually came out of the camp. So there's that connection, but... Was a city of resistance against the British as well. Yes, if we... How far back do you want to go? But yes, Palestine was under the British mandate, and and Janine was also a center of resistance under the British mandate, and Palestinians at that time were, of course, striving for independence Mm -hmm. from British rule. They have, you know, Palestinians have, of course, experienced visitors throughout history, (laughs) I call them that, and the Ottomans before the British, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and, of course, they look at the... Israelis as another occupying power. Of course, the Israeli situation is different because Jews have a historical connection to the ancient land of Israel. And that's Mm -hmm. what makes the situation somewhat more complicated, Mm -hmm. but in my mind also hopeful because you have two peoples who have a strong connection to the same land. Uh, The question is, how can we live together in that space in a way that doesn't privilege one people over the other, which is the current situation? Right. And that's that's the dilemma, isn't it? It is the dilemma. (laughs) And it shouldn't be that difficult. But unfortunately, it is. Yeah. It is where we are. What what's the role of Janine in your story? Well, I 
first traveled to Palestine and Israel back in 1986 as a student of international studies. I stayed with uh, my father arranged for me to stay with a a Jewish family in Jerusalem. They were new Jewish immigrants who were able to immigrate to Israel through the law of return, which allows any Jew anywhere in the world to uh, settle in Israel and receive Israeli citizenship and the full rights as an Israeli citizen. And I visited a family in Gaza. I had met uh, a Palestinian in in Germany while I was studying there, my junior year abroad. And that's a family of refugees. I was invited with my brother to visit them. And so I got to see an American family become Israeli overnight and a Palestinian family who were refugees from 1948, going back to the, you know, their, their, original home is in the city of Jaffa, which is literally, you know, a short car ride from from Gaza. So so that's how things started. When I came back and studied, you know, finished my bachelor's in the U.S., I met my husband at Wayne State University, where I was studying Arabic and Russian at the time, while finishing up at University of Michigan, Dearborn. And we kept in touch and ultimately got married. And his family is from the village of Jelema, which is just a few kilometers from Mm Janine, right on the border of the West Bank. There is a Jelemi checkpoint, Mm -hmm. which is where uh, Palestinians and Israel can cross over to shop in Janine. Part of the backbone of the Janine economy is that relationship between Palestinians in Israel who have Israeli citizenship and Palestinians who are native or refugees in Janine. So uh, Janine was sort of the, the big city for her uh, that people from this Jalama uh, village or small town would go to and people got services there or whatever, you know, had their, you The know. traditional culture of Palestine is agricultural. And so every city, whether it's Jerusalem, Nablus, Haifa, Akka, going all through historic uh, Palestinian cities, they're all surrounded by Palestinian villages. Mm -hmm. And so the villages bring, of course, their goods to market. Mm -hmm. They feed the people. Mm -hmm. And the cities are full of, you know, commerce and culture. And, uh, you know, so there's that there's that symbiotic relationship between the city and the village uh, culture in Mm -hmm. Palestine. What was the work that you were involved with in Janine? Is that where you were involved in the schools? Well, there was one year. uh, My husband and I decided it would be important to have our children have more time with their extended family. They have 75 first cousins. Who can say that? (laughs) Uh, You can imagine now. Can you name them? (laughs) I actually can, but I I don't think we have time. Um, Yes, I know each one by name, and now many of them are married and have kids of their own. So, yes, that's a a full-time job, just keeping track of (laughs) the full extended family. There was a year when uh, my before my daughter was born, my sons were in uh, kindergarten and first grade, and we spent uh, I spent the year with them in Janine. They got to go to school at a new um, uh, English uh, school that was part of the newly establishing uh, Arab American University in Janine, which is now a, a full fledged university. And uh, during that time, I volunteered at the school. And ultimately was hired to work as a consultant to uh, look into disciplinary issues. And also that was one of my passions because I had witnessed some leftover legacy from the British uh, schooling of, of, you know, physical punishment punishment for the simplest things like forgetting your homework. Yeah. And I was able to, I I did my own research project and was able to kind of turn things around with the Ministry of Education to, uh, to, you know, remove that policy. Or it wasn't a policy officially. It was just what people did or thought they had to do to keep the class in order. And uh, so I have some grateful uh, nieces and nephews who, <laughs> who who felt like overnight I was able to to make some difference in Palestine, at least in in that regard. Um, but yeah, and and working at the school was just I I coordinated uh, you know across the curriculum and and programs to to connect parents with teachers, and so that really inspired me to get my doctorate at University of Madison, 
University of Wisconsin-Madison in educational leadership and policy analysis because I was Mm -hmm. doing all this work and I felt embarrassed. I didn't have the credentials, even though I felt like I knew what I was doing. So I did go back for my PhD. And for that reason, that was the inspiration. Yeah. Looking at your your book, um, it's called a memoir. Yes. That's sort of the sub-subtitle. (laughs) Sub-subtitle. Is a memoir. And, you know, I think of a memoir as, as a memory. You're, you know, sitting there at your laptop and gazing back into the past. And um, But the book is written in the present tense. It is written in the present tense why because— does that, Why does that help you? What did that when do I, you? When I decided to write this book, I started with what writer, we writers call pivotal events. You know, things that I witnessed that really touched me deeply emotionally. And that's part of the power of memory. You know, when something is so powerful, you remember it vividly often. In my case, that's that is the case. And so I started collecting my, you know, writing down these pivotal events. And then I analyzed what am I even writing? You know, because memory is one thing. How does memory become a story? Because that's what memoir is. From my (laughs) doctorate days, I analyzed what I was writing and the thread, the golden thread of dignity came through very vividly. And so that's the lens through which I wrote the rest of the book and you know, through which I edited the book, you know, what, how, do, how does what happened, what I witnessed, relate to the story of dignity for Palestinians and ultimately, of course, for Israelis. This is not just about Palestinians, yeah. of course. There's one passage that um, I thought was very touching. Um, I mean, the book, again, is, is called Crossing Borders. Why don't you uh, read this passage yes. about your your son? Borders definitely figure heavily into the book because borders de- delineate who gets to go where and who controls the lines. And so that's part of why I have so many maps in this book. But it is also why, um, you know, b- between my experience in Germany with East-West Germany and going across the checkpoint in Berlin or other checkpoints right. in West Germany, knowing Second the history, nature to you now. knowing the history of Detroit <laughs> that that you know Black Americans were not allowed to live outside of East and West Grand Boulevard and later right. Eight Mile <laughs> personal passage. Um, this takes place in 1998. That year I was just speaking about when mm-hmm. I was with my sons Kanan and Caramel in Palestine, and we're about to head back to visit Nasser in the U.S. After spending the last four months in Palestine, living in Jelama. It's time for Kanan, Caramel, and me to go back to the U.S. to see Nasser for the holidays. We need to get to Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv in the middle of the night for a pre-dawn flight. New restrictions are in place at the border. No longer can a taxi drive from Israel can a taxi driver from Israel enter the West Bank. So we will have to cross walk across the checkpoint. It is midnight when Nasser's brother Jamal drives us to the checkpoint. He helps me carry our luggage to the gate, where a group of Israeli soldiers are standing with their M-16s hanging loosely across their chests. It is unusually warm for this time of year. The night air is thick and moist, though the heavy rains have yet to fall. There's no moon to brighten the darkness beyond the floodlights. The checkpoint is just just a concrete shelter for the soldiers in the middle of the road with a simple metal gate on each side to block the road. Jamal helps me get the luggage to the checkpoint, but he cannot cross with me. I cannot carry caramel because I have to manage our suitcases and handbags. Kanan stands close to me, watching the soldiers as they gather in front of us. I urged caramel to stay close to us, but he starts running around the luggage. The soldiers ask for our passports and where we're going. They flip through the pages, glancing up now and then. Suddenly, Caramel darts forward and throws his arms around one of the soldier's legs, his face buried in the soldier's heavy olive green army pants. I call out to him to come back as my eyes meet the soldiers. We know we are on two sides of a bitter conflict, but Caramel doesn't know he is hugging the enemy. His ignorance diminishes the tension between us. I smile as an apology that my son has crossed the invisible line that divides us. This soldier is our gatekeeper to travel home. 
I reach for Carmel's arms to release his embrace, but he hugs him tighter. The soldier's eyes soften as if Carmel has pulled him out of his role as a soldier for a moment. We both reclaim our identities as occupier and occupied. When one of the other soldiers hands me back our passports and grants us passage across the green line, Caramel finally releases his embrace. If only there were no borders between us. I'll stop there. That's really great. Yeah, I thought that was, you know, the whole story and really a lot of the how do you scrape up the humanity in people and find it. Or as you say, um, the golden thread of, of dignity. And in a way, I mean, Carmel's just emotional human move of a boy seeking a man, and he's a person of power, obviously, you know, and and sort of aligning himself with that is, you know, his own humanity. And um, it's just a, a fantastic thing about the power and the honesty of children, well, really, yeah. and how and, much and, they can and bring how to us. and how in that moment, you know, when power is at play when I am essentially vulnerable to that situation powerless I'm at the to to connect with a soldier and I do that elsewhere in the book of course Mm -hmm. as you know and if you read the book you'll see other instances (laughs) that are that are way more um, on the edge of your seat kind of scenes Mm -hmm. where where I have to connect with people at a human level. That's the only way we're ever going to get out of this. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what's so sad about the current situation that has evolved into more and more separation, not only through this ridiculous concrete wall that snakes mm-hmm. its way through the West Bank, but all the checkpoints and borders and, and all the IDs and paperwork that go with that, you know, that are a hassle and humiliating for the Palestinians who, you know, including Israeli citizens. Mm-hmm. And long waits, that's part of it. Is exactly. You have to wait and wait and, and wait. And the uncertainty, every day that uncertainty of, you know, am I going to get to school? And, you know, in certain areas, you know, these are daily questions, like like in Hebron right mm-hmm. now, you know, when Palestinians are trying to get to school and the city is literally divided, almost like, Berlin, but without the wall, just the the main street in Hebron, Shuhada, Mm -hmm. which used to be the main uh, shopping street, the souk for for the city of Hebron is now completely shut down by the Israeli army. And so, you know, it's 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 affecting people's lives every single day. And it's yeah. One of the um, points about your book that I thought was honest, but revealing is that other than the soldiers at the checkpoint, Israelis are completely invisible. They're not there. And I assume that that really is the case that's lived by most of the people. I mean, you're with family, family, family during this. And I mean, it's sort of a a presence, but not a visible one. Is that the but, case? But or? the thing is, you used to. You know, the book starts in the 80s. I was in Gaza. We oh. from Gaza. You know, right now Gaza is under siege for 17 years. Yes, you can't go in or out. Camp. When I first went there, we could just take a taxi to the border. Of course, there were soldiers, but we could cross them. And it was in, in Janine in the early days when I first went to Janine in 92. And when you say we, you're including your husband in this. Well, in Gaza, it was me and my brother, brother. visiting this family. Mm-hmm. And later, it's me and, and of course, my husband's family, mm-hmm. you know, where... Israelis came and got their car fixed in Janine. It was very normal, you mm-hmm. know, because it was cheaper. And, and you mm-hmm. know, people strike up conversations. So there was, there, there were oh. interactions. Uh-huh. Those have fallen by the wayside through the increased separation. Oslo itself, by, by calling the West Bank area A, B, and C, carved it up into a piece of Swiss cheese. All of that has, has decrease the interactions, what I would say, the normal day-to-day interactions. Of course, in Israel, you have Palestinian citizens of Israel. 20% of the population of Israel are Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And so there are interactions between Palestinians and Israelis. But even in Israel, Palestinians live in what I call the shadow of the state of Israel. It's a self-defined Jewish state. Mm -hmm. If you are not Jewish, how do you think you feel in that state? And that's one of the flaws, unfortunately, of Zionism, was defining place as a Jewish state that 
has a native population of Palestinians. That is a recipe for disaster, and that's why we are where we are, set up as a, as a binational state with two peoples and one land. That's hopefully the future. But the, by design, it was a recipe for conflict. Deep flaw. We're talking with Krista Brun, who's the author of the newly published book, Crossing Borders. This is a, a personal memoir of her family and uh, raising a family and living across borders uh, between uh, the U.S. and and Palestine and Israel, and, and some reflection on on her upbringing, her early life, uh, crossing borders in uh, Germany, east-west, when that existed, and Detroit, and just many other facets of the U.S. life where people build geographic uh, boundaries between us. Talk a bit about the, the conflicts here between the Palestinians themselves. One of the aspects of the book is you really are submerged in, in kind of the day-to-day life of your family and of your husband's family as well, and it's life as it's lived. And, of course, one of the key points in the book is food. Uh, there are many meals that are described, in fact, and how the meals are prepared and served. It's, it's such a um, more than a touchstone. I mean, it's, it's really sort of the central aspect of, of a lot of the exchange and celebration and so on. Just as sort of Israelis are really out of the picture in these in the in this life, um, there's very little about the issues among Palestinians. I mean, in the U.S., I uh, would view it through the lens of that there was this ongoing, very popular, massive conflict between uh, PLO and Hamas and different factions that come and go, um, that really doesn't come up. I mean, the discussions that people have really relate to sort of the fundamental issue is that we're occupied, we're engaged in kind of a low-level war that's ongoing of resistance, but not involved in discussions of, of strategy. For Palestinians, living is resistance. That's the resistance that doesn't make it in the headlines. Most Palestinians are resisting Israeli occupation, the the reconfiguration of Palestine into the state of Israel. They're resisting that Zionist agenda, continuing to live their lives as Palestinians in Palestine for those who are there on the ground. And that's um, something that during all the attacks in Janine um, and the situation of the camp of 15,000 whatever, thousands of people who have been there for decades, is the fact that they don't move into the old city or move to some other city. And is being in the camp, is that the resistance? If you're a Palestinian refugee, whether you're in a camp, whether you're in downtown New York City or Berlin, whether you live... Refugee is a status defined by the UN Mm -hmm. for those who registered at the time that they were displaced or dispossessed from their land and their homes. That doesn't address the Palestinians in Israel who were internally displaced, whose Mm -hmm. villages were destroyed. And, you know, I I write about that in my book as well. I think the issue with the camp is you are someone who has lost access to your home, mm-hmm. your literal physical home, that if, if it were in a city, probably is still there. If it's in a village, villages were destroyed in Israel. You mm-hmm. know, 80% of the Palestinian population that lived in what became the state of Israel became refugees. And so their villages, many, many of them were, were villagers, and their villages were destroyed. You know, some say over 400, 500 villages were destroyed. The land is still there. There's an, a very strong identity to place. And so it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a refugee and you're from the village of Haifa, that's where you're from. It doesn't matter how many generations go back. And so to get out of the camp is not the goal. It's to have the right to live in your homeland as a Palestinian, to have that right, what Palestinians call the right of return. 
and obviously in places that are now heavily populated by Israelis, something like that would have to be negotiated. How do you recognize or honor a place that no longer exists? But for many of the the places, they are still there. You know, Israel, for whatever reason, didn't build on top of most of these villages that they, they destroyed. It's very realistic, actually, for Israelis and Palestinians to live together on the same land for Palestinians to return to their ancestral homes or at least, you know, to rebuild their lives if they, you know, they, they should have the right to choose to do that or not. Why would that be advantageous to the Israelis? What was the point of Israel? What was the point of Zionism? Is that Jews need a safe haven. They want to be safe. Mm -hmm. This is not a recipe for safety. It's not a dignified existence, even for Israelis. Try to get into the mind, you know, I'm not having dinner with the Israeli soldier, but to at least be, wonder the soldier that plows down Nasser's family's trees. Is, that, is, is he ideologically invested in that? Is it just his job? But it's still, regardless of, of how that person feels, you know, or, or the, the young 18, 19-year-old soldiers that have to go serve in the West Bank, what does that do? to the young next generation of Israelis, of Jewish Israelis, to have to subject a whole population to that kind of humiliation. And mm -hmm. of course, that is also what creates greater resistance. Who would put mm -hmm. up with that? You, mm -hmm. you or I, in a day in the life of a Palestinian. It's a downward spiral. And I mean, and part of the problem is this incredible power differential. Israel has not only, it's, it's a very established modern state, it has the backing of the United States, the Western world. You know, it's in a very powerful position to, you said, you know, why would they do that? They don't have to do anything. They have the power to keep things going as is, to manage the occupation, manage the conflict, go every now and then and bomb Gaza, what they call mowing the lawn, to kind of deter resistance and obliterate any any pockets of of black market resistance that has, uh, you know, weapons or things like that that have managed to cross the border. At the end of the day, this doesn't serve Israel. It doesn't serve Jews. It doesn't serve, you know, our concepts of freedom and democracy that even Israel aspires to. I think that's sort of the open question now is whether the majority is willing to even is ready to give up the sham of that we're a Western democracy and and, and what we want is roughly a theocratic state. I guess that's sort of a bigger question, but it's it's a it's an ominous one for for everyone. It's an ominous one for the most of the educated Israelis as well as its allies. It may wind up being more like Saudi Arabia. We would hope not, because Israel was established for the Jewish people, and it professes to to exist in the name of the Jewish people. And half of the Jewish people live outside of Israel. Many of them live in the United States and have very strong values of social justice going way back. So to kind of hijack Israel as a theocracy would—I don't know how— the majority of Jews around the world would feel about that. and, and I think you yeah. know that it's, I, I don't know what the latest polling is, but it's probably really a majority now are feeling poorly about, um, about it. I mean, I have friends, I'm Jewish, and um, I have friends who are, have family in Israel, who go to Israel, and are sickened by it. And, you know, they question their, you know, what was a very deep support for Israel because of, on one hand, this ultra-theocratic state rule by really a, a commission of rabbis uh, who, you know, militarists and people who are, they're not white supremacists, but they're Jewish supremacists. Yes, it is. You know? It is Jewish supremacy. Uh, yeah, and uh, who want to act on it and feel that... Um, you know, sort of the worst aspects of it, uh, of of our own history. I mean, one of the things that um, striking to me was after terrible violence where a Palestinian killed uh, three or four Israelis, you know, randomly, 
But the response to that was hundreds of men went through, I don't recall what city it was, and this was just a few weeks ago, and burned homes, burned... Hawada, the the town of Hawada Hawada? was was attacked. When they were describing it on the news, I said, it's a program. Uh, That's what they did. They reenacted a program, which was really the immediate motive force for Zionism. It's just they're going through, we're going through like, uh, you know, 100-year cycles here. And, and you know, what so-and-so did to us, now we're doing to them, and then they'll do thus and such. And it's an endless game of, of you know, evening the score, but where one side has an army and the other side has, you know, Nothing. Right. Really. We get this tit for tat. But yeah. of course, it's the American army against, you know, young guys with, with right. guns and yeah. in jeans and T-shirts. So yeah. it's incredible. And then the um, I think it caused some misapprehension among so many Israelis, this event that uh, the government responded by arresting four people. What do Jews think? But we see in Israel ever since Netanyahu came to power. Since January, there have been weekly demonstrations by Israelis. These are primarily Jewish Israelis oh, who yeah. are who are looking out for their what they see as a threat to their democracy. There's this whole judicial overhaul in the Israeli government that's that's being attempted, and I would hope that that you know when when Jews in Israel feel threatened that their democracy is at stake it's it's already not really been there for the Palestinians i would hope that that would lead to conversations about how can this be a democracy for everyone from the river to the sea you know i mean why can't we have that conversation because the people live there half of the population between the river which is the jordan river mm-hmm. the border between jordan and israel and the west bank and the sea is the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. Half of the people who live in that space right now are Palestinians, and half of them are Jewish Israelis, some of them settlers, some of them living in Israel proper. It's not sustainable for Israel to continue to live at the expense or on the backs of Palestinians. We didn't tolerate that ultimately here in this country, in the United States to have segregation and two kinds of laws and systems for white people and black people. We didn't tolerate it ultimately in South Africa. You know, we put pressure on that government not to dismantle South Africa, to dismantle the legal system that puts, subjects one population to be a second-class citizen in their own home. That's where we need to head. But yes, who's going to make Israel do that? From looking at your great collection of maps in the book. I mean, it just fall. I'm a you know map person, so I really you know appreciated sort of how the story goes, and you could sort of watch it visually and get a depiction of what's going on uh, by some of the maps. I looked at the maps and the these um, real concentration of little village here and two villages there, all separated by area A, B, C. Roads, Jewish roads, non-Jewish roads, is that these were Bantu stands, uh, as as was created in South Africa. Yeah, it's very that, similar. That these unfortunately. were places where you know the native population can live. That were, or or what we did in terms of reservations that were, sure. you know, non-arable land, poor services, and of course politically disenfranchised. We're talking with Krista Brun who is the author of Crossing Borders. Uh, It's a recently published book, and I'm sure you could find it online. Let's try a little light side here. (laughs) We've been been getting pretty— Yeah, uh, you you dove right into Janine. uh, (laughs) Hit me right over the head. (laughs) Pretty pretty dark. (laughs) Throughout the book, you really write from the beginning. I mean, I don't know whether you're leaving Gaza as a a teenager or whatever, or or your return later on and— of course, uh, you're struck by the forced, uh, you know, misery of of the situation, um, and you want to do something about it. And you keep saying, "I I've got to 
do something about this, and you go to some you know demonstration or you participate in student activities. You, you do it, and it's done. Then um, you and your husband come up with this idea of the Canon 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 uh, Fair Trade. And, you know, I've been reading outside of your book. I've been reading about it. <laughs> Could you talk a bit about it? First of all, Nasser and I are both foodies. We love to I got cook. That. And we've always cooked together. And <laughs> you, uh, you did the Sheesh restaurant. Yes. Sheesh Cafe. Yes. We, we started a food vending business when we decided that we're not going to do the whole corporate America thing. Started this whole food business, which led to a restaurant in Madison. Led to, led to what is happening, you know, in, in you know the art fair in the square in Madison. We sold German roasted almonds and Middle Eastern food. And people demanded a restaurant. So we catered to that and opened a restaurant. We had a restaurant for a while, but of course we also wanted to make a difference in Palestine. We both went back and got our PhDs and really Nasser's a visionary behind Canaan Fair Trade. It really came out of, he was doing his doctoral work, uh, his his um, field work on suicide bombers, you know, which led to a book, The Making <laughs> of a Human Bomb, which yeah. is the other route this conflict can go of. You know, he saw the way Farmers could not live off their land. They, the 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 olive oil prices were so low; it was impossible to export as a Palestinian. Most of the surplus of olive oil was sold to Israel, marketed as an Israeli product. People sometimes were not even paid or paid way late. And of course, the olive harvest is the beginning of the farming season, so it's so important for people to get paid so they can plan the rest of the crops for the rainy season. So anyway, Nasser saw all that. He also wrote his dissertation in fair trade coffee shops, found out there's no <laughs> there's no fair trade principles, uh, guidelines for, for olive oil. So he wrote uh-huh. he wrote them himself uh-huh. and uh, and started a, a federation for farmers so they would have a voice on the ground. But anyway, the Canon Fair Trade became an export company, working with farmers across the area, mostly in the Janine area, now even inside Israel and expanded to, to almond farming as well, to empower local farmers to really go back to their tradition of organic farming, get the recognition for it that they're already doing, mm-hmm. and, and you know get certified organic, mm-hmm. operate under fair trade principles, which means you have a living wage. And so that's the project that became Canaan Fair Trade, what we now call Canaan Palestine. And uh, what it has done is it's made the olive oil, the price of olive oil, increase so that farmers can live off the land instead of being day laborers in Israel, which means waking up, standing at the border at 3 a.m., hoping you get picked up. You get paid for the day. You're not allowed to stay overnight, so you've got to return 12 hours later. What yeah. does that do to a family? So being ha- being able to live as a farmer as these, you know, I told you, it's the backbone of Palestinian society is, is <coughs> agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so it's empowered people to stay on the land. And it's put Palestine, which is not on the world map, it's put it at least on the shelf. Yes. You know, that Palestine can, you know, one small farmer can't export his olive oil, but through Canaan... They can export, you know, Canaan pools the olive oil, make sure it's it's up to standard by all the, you know, world the, markets. They have the latest equipment. Exactly. How, to do it. how many farmers are participating? They're, they're around anywhere from 1,700 to 2,000 farmers. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, you know, these farmers, it, it's an investment in the community. The farming families are, th- there's also women's cooperatives. So many of the women are also working in the operation making the very food that they serve their families, maftul, which some people may know as Israeli couscous. Mm-hmm. Talk about expropriate. <laughs> um, friki, which is a superfood. You know, it's, it's green harvested wheat that's been fire roasted. It's incredibly nutritious. And that is also sold, uh, tap, olive tapenades. And then, mm-hmm. of course, olive oil, you know, the highest grade olive oil uh, pooled from these farmers and sold uh, around the world. So it's an incredible operation, and it just it, it's just part of our food story, you know, that that has really made a difference on the ground. And you know, the the motto of that is 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 so focused on on life. You know, this is. And what's the motto? Uh, <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of it. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I'm I'm caught off guard, but yeah. um, 
No, but the, the point I want to make, we started this conversation about Janine. Yeah. Janine is a hotbed of resistance. Janine is also a hotbed of incredible development and life and livelihood. These same things are happening in the same space. Canaan Fair Trade is building, is keeping people on their land, giving them so hope for the So that's the resistance. Future. That's a different yes. form of the resistance. Yeah, insisting on life. That right. is the motto. Sorry, that <laughs> is it. Uh-huh. It's insisting on life. It's saying we're going to live no matter what the conditions and do whatever it takes to make our lives possible. And I mean, I wonder when I go there. I'm, you know, I'm so obsessed with making a difference. I wrote this whole book about the last 30 years of my life. But when I travel there, and you said that, people are not sitting around arguing over Hamas and Fatah. They're, they just want to get to school or to work, make mm-hmm. sure their son gets, you know, has a, a, a means of livelihood so he can get married and raise a family, that they can marry off their daughters, young men who are going to provide for them. And Yes, have many, many grandchildren. Yeah, many <laughs> many women are in the workforce as well as mm-hmm. as you know journalists and teachers and all kinds of things in the medical uh, f- sphere. But that's what people talk about, and they're talking about food. They're talking about how they made their their maklubi. Mm-hmm. You know, which whose is better? Whose is better? What's <laughs> the, you know? That's what people do. And so, and and the the hope. I mean, I talked to uh, the son of of. Salwa was was the woman who was pregnant when I went to Gaza. I talked mm-hmm. to her youngest son the other day in Gaza, and here he is under siege his whole life, and he's so hopeful. He said, you know, I have my family. We have the sea. I mean, it's the, the, the sense of just hope and trust that things are going to be okay, that somehow the injustice of the situation will unfold to to a better future you know people people of course want things they have a sense of urgency they want things to change but they also have a deep belief that this is not sustainable it can't go on like this and the trust that palestinians in the 30s put in the british government of course was all flawed here we are in 2023 we have to we have to look forward we have to have hope in spite of you know even even the Israelis who are marching in the street every week for the last seven months have hope that even what is happening now for them is not sustainable. What do you think for the Palestinians? So for everyone, it has to change. Yeah. And, you know, it's part of, part of our role as Americans to, to educate ourselves and, and to call for that, you know, the very values that we take for granted of freedom and democracy and human rights, the ones that we're still fighting for. You know, look at look at what's happened here with things like George Floyd and police brutality. Mm-hmm. You're, aside from your hope, and you have many hopes and um, wishes and so on, aspirations in the book, both really for the, for the world and for the Palestinian people and and for the Jews of Israel to come and recognize um, the cost, the deep moral, social, political cost um, of the occupation. Let's take our aspiration of hope and put that aside and think, where do you think we're at 10 years from now? Well, let me tell you this. When I was an undergrad, I took a class at University of Michigan on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it was our final paper was to predict in 50 years. So that would have been in the, in the 80s. Yeah. In 50 years, are. where would we be? So you we're, still have the paper? I, I, I believe I do. <laughs> I bet my professor does. I'm still in touch with him. But the point is, my view on this hasn't really changed much. It seemed to me even way back then that the only the only solution is to share the land. It's imperfect. Palestinians, you know, I say in my book, for Palestinians, Israel's Palestine. For Israelis, for Jewish Israelis, Palestine is Israel. Israel. You know, nobody really wants to cut the land up. Official Israeli maps don't even show the green line. They're not allowed 
to include the line, the wall. None of this is on the Israeli maps in the schools. So they don't want it. Both of them want the whole land. Mm-hmm. Israel, is, you know, is, Israel wants to be a Jewish state. Palestine wants to be a Palestinian state. So it is. it has become, whether we like it or not, I call it uh, an arranged marriage. That where there's no option uh, for a, divorce. It's a disarranged Disarranged marriage. <laughs> but it's, it's you know, the, the forces of history have imposed this situation on the Jewish people and the Palestinian people. And this is where we are. You know, I'm not saying that people are ready to join hands, but they could sure use some help. We're not helping. American policy isn't helping. When you have a situation like this, where one side has so much power over the other, and you just perpetuate conflict by supporting that. So as Americans, it's really important that we are the level-headed fair brokers that both sides desperately need us to be. And, and what country ever gave up power willingly it, or, or gave up, you know, who, who wanted to give up their slaves? Who right. wanted to, you know, to, to share a bathroom? <laughs> At the end, one of the things that you write is, uh, well, there are two parts. Uh, One is, uh, today the question of Palestine is simple. Could you uh, read a bit about that? I think that encapsulates a lot of what uh, we've been talking about. Sure. And just for those of you who don't know, the the question of Palestine is like an official thing. You can go on the UN Mm. website and read about the question of Palestine. And that's the question, the burning question that needs to be answered. Mm Mm-hmm. So today, the question of Palestine is simple. Do the Jews of the world have the courage to come out of the shadow of persecution they inherited from their ancestors, particularly the Holocaust, that has both blinded and justified their takeover of Palestine and brought suffering on the Palestinian people? Do Jewish Israelis have the courage to redefine their presence in Palestine from this legacy of victimhood that drove them to become conquerors, to co-pilots, or do they wish to remain in a vicious cycle of trying to erase a Palestine that, like Subur, which is the cactus fruit that is all over Palestine, only grows back more resilient than ever. Samud, steadfastness. Later, in the, you write about uh, the, the role of Christian Zionists. Yeah, I can read that, too. So yeah. I also wonder about, then this is all from the epilogue of mm. the book. I also wonder about the Christian Zionists who seem to care more for prophecy than the values in the scripture Jesus gave his life to uphold. What twisted stories are these that grant Jews exclusive rights to the Holy Land, the homeland of the Palestinians. As human beings, are we not all children of God? Where is the righteousness in that? Can't the deep connection to both peoples to the same land be upheld? I think those are really some of the deep political questions towards the resolution. I think the as as you could see, uh, and I don't know. I'm sure some political scientist is doing a study of this. How how Jewish members of the Congress and Senate become less supportive of Israel over time, and Christian Zionist members of Congress are now have taken their place and. Um, and bizarrely, I mean, when I was, uh, you know, 40 years ago, protection of Israel was a hallmark of the Democratic Party of the, you know, foreign policy. And now it's the Republican. A uh, central aspect of it is, you know, Israel at any cost. And you can see that in many of the candidates they have, and uh, but not ours. And not our, ours, meaning the uh, Democratic uh, leaders. Well, and that correlates with, with, you know, previously Israel relied primarily on American Jews to mm-hmm. support the state of Israel, to support 
the construction of settlements. Right. Financially, that important. financial sh- that the majority of the money going toward settlement construction is actually coming from Christian Zionists today, not from American Jews. Oh. That just correlates That's to it? exactly yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's as the name says, it's a catastrophe, and and. It wasn't just the you know the, you talk about the not not the, the Nakaba. Yes, the I published this book. You know when do I when do I need to finish this book? I've been working on it for ten years. There have been lots of times I thought I'm done, but it finally I finally realized this has to come out this year. This is the seventy fifth anniversary of the founding of the state of Israel in on you know May fourteenth, nineteen forty eight. And it's also it also marks what Palestinians call the Nakba, which is Arabic for catastrophe. And for for Palestinians, it's not a day in history. The Palestinians today talk of the ongoing Nakba. Can mm-hmm. Land continues to be confiscated for settlements or security reasons. People continue to be uh, disenfranchised from their homes. The the Nakba has not stopped. Even it's an e- ongoing catastrophe. It's an ongoing catastrophe, and mm-hmm. and. It's enough. Seventy-five years, my whole life, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm now. I'm personally invested in this. I have three Palestinian children. Who, well, what are your kids doing now? Well, my, and, my sons uh, work with their father. Oh, one oh. from the U.S. One from one is mostly in in Palestine, working with Canaan, uh, Palestine, mm-hmm. uh, helping that operation, uh, you know, grow and fulfill its mm-hmm. mission and uh, my daughter's in college mm-hmm. Sham mm-hmm. and uh, she has gotten her feet wet with doing some social media with the company we'll see <laughs> you know of course their father would love for them all to be working with with the company and uh, we'll see how how the future unfolds so but a PhD <laughs> is uh, family business <laughs> yeah but but the the thing is you know we can't wait so Canaan is investing in now in people's lives, but the political situation also needs to be addressed. And right. and you know, seventy five years is is long is way too long already. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Krista, for uh, participating in this really in, informative talk and writing a a book that I felt is a different view of the life of Palestinians and of by sharing your life and your experience that uh, sometimes we sort of get into the belief, as I often did, that you know, this is a life of, of trudge and misery, but, um, but the, the, the joy and the spark of life is evident throughout the book. And you asked me about the present tense. That's, you know, I'm reliving my life as I write this book. Mm-hmm. I've written it now. You as a reader get to see my whole story through my eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why the present tense just made sense because you're you're living mm-hmm. it in the now as you read each page right. and each word. Right. So if you can't go there, you can certainly travel there through me. <laughs> right. Again, this is uh, David Ahrens for Madison Bookbeat, and we've been talking to Krista Brun, author of Crossing Borders. See you next week. Thank you.